Let's open our Bibles, if you have it, to the book of Hebrews, as I said, in chapter 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can find your place there. Hebrews chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible with you or something to look at, right on the screen behind me are the words. Let me read from Hebrews 3, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 6 and follow on the screen or follow there in your Bible. Therefore, holy brethren, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, For a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope. Consider Jesus. It's his command, it's the command of our author to his readers and to us, consider Jesus. That is, fix your thoughts, your translation might say, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Think carefully. Think closely about Jesus. Give full attention to Jesus. That's what he's saying. Consider. He's not just saying, hey, you might try Jesus out. You ever consider Jesus? He's saying, give your full attention to Jesus. As I've said throughout this study of Hebrews, our author wants us occupied with Jesus. Occupied with Jesus. The one person in the universe that we can never be too occupied with. (laughs) And really, this letter is written to help us Consider Jesus. He's going to show us the supremacy, the magnificence of Jesus, who he is, as we've been seeing, and what he has done. So this whole letter helps us consider Jesus. So thank you for being here and just giving attention as we go through. You're giving attention and considering Jesus. He is worthy of all our consideration, our full consideration, and all our devotion. It seems that some, if not many, in this congregation to whom this author is writing, they're mostly Jewish Christians, that some, if not many, are in danger of turning away. They're in danger of falling away. Or even turning back to Old Testament forms and practices. We don't know all the reasons for their temptation to turn back or to turn away. Perhaps it's safer. This is an era of persecution like we see around the world today. They are facing it. It's on the horizon. Or perhaps they're just more comfortable with those old... They feel some level of comfort and assurance in those older 
forms and rituals or it's more reassuring. Whatever the reason, they are in spiritual danger. That's what our author is saying. The danger of turning away. So in this letter, what I've called a sermon letter because it's really written like a sermon, he exhorts them to hold fast to Christ. Hold fast. We see, look there, verse 6. See the first use of this word he's going to use three times right at the end. If we hold fast, this is his great pastoral purpose. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast in faith. Don't give up. Don't turn back. Don't shrink away in unbelief. He wants them to hold fast to Christ and he shows them through this letter how Jesus is better. Jesus is superior and why he is worthy of our unceasing consideration and worship and that there is no hope outside of him. So, Consider, give full attention to Jesus. Now, the paragraph I just read, verses 1 through 6 there, may feel somewhat like an abrupt change of direction as he introduces Moses here, but it's really not. It is a transition of sorts into a somewhat new section, but it still falls within this larger first part of his letter. So let me try to connect the dots for you, just so you kind of get a sense of the flow of thought with the author. He's not just randomly changing subjects or pulling in things haphazardly or randomly. He's, he's got a focus in the first part of his letter. The first part of his letter, I think, is Hebrews 1, almost through the end of chapter 4. It's the first major section or part of his sermon. And I'll just summarize this major part with these two bullets. The first, the one we've seen several times up to this point, the God who spoke on Mount Sinai, the great law. He spoke, remember, he spoke by angels somehow, the agency of angels to Moses. The God who spoke on Mount Sinai has now spoken definitively in his son. So he has that Great revelation at Mount Sinai and the people who received it there. It's an awesome revelation on the mountain. Through the agency of angels, those majestic creatures, to Moses, who's the great mediator. And he's saying, yes, the God who spoke there, now now in these last days, he has spoken definitively, finally, completely in his son, not angels. In his son. That is the son. He's the final climactic revelation of God. All that was said in that former revelation is now fulfilled in the son. He's superior. The son himself is the revelation. He didn't just bring a word. He is in himself and what he does. The final climactic word from God. And what has he brought? He's brought a great salvation. Not just another law, but he's, he's brought a great salvation. That's this great final word in Christ. And right in the middle, so that's really chapter 1, he's been exhorting that. And then right there in the middle, right at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, pay attention. It's back to his pastoral purpose. Pay attention. This, this great revelation has come in Christ, so pay attention. Don't drift away from it. And he includes a, a warning there. 
How shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation, this final word? They didn't escape if they neglected the former word. How will we escape? You hear the the warning there. So pay attention. And then in the rest of chapter 2, what we've been seeing the last several weeks, he completes the description of the exalted son by showing how his incarnation and suffering were the necessary means to him being exalted as the high priest. So he goes on to give some of this great salvation. The way, the way this exalted son accomplished that is through his incarnation and his sufferings. We've been asking the question, why? Why is incarnation and suffering? So that's the means by which he is exalted as high priest for us. And we ended on that note last Sunday, chapter 2, verse 17, this idea that Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. So now in this section, he's not changing subjects. He's going to extend the comparison. So again, just like the people there, they received that great word at Mount Sinai by the agency of angels through Moses. And we have received that final climactic word in the sun. That's the comparison. Now he's going to extend the comparison. What happened to that generation who received that great, awesome revelation at Mount Sinai. What happened to them? Well, we're going to see it in chapter 3. So the second part of this first big section here, here, here's the next point. Avoid the unbelief of God's people after Sinai in the wilderness who failed to enter his rest. So he's just drawing out the comparison. They received in awesome terms, this revelation on the mountain through Moses, the great mediator and lawgiver. And what happened? They left Mount Sinai and they rebelled and fell in unbelief and didn't enter his rest. And his great exhortation here to us is don't imitate them. You've received this greater word in the greater son, mediator, in Jesus. Don't, don't imitate their unbelief. Hold fast, persevere. Hold fast to Christ. So that's, that's where he's going. So now, if he's extending the comparison, that's what he's doing here. As I said, he's not changing subjects. He's extending the comparison to get to his main pastoral point. Where do you start with this comparison? You start with Moses. Why Moses? Again, it's not haphazard. He's not just thinking, who's a lot of great people I can compare Jesus to? Right? No, it's very intentional because Moses was the mediator. He's the great mediator of that former revelation. He's the great spokesman, prophet, of God and the leader of the people into that wilderness, right? That's Moses. So he begins this extension of his comparison with comparing Jesus and Moses to say Jesus is greater. He's greater than Moses. Why would you go back to Moses? Do you understand the role of Moses? That's what he's going to give us. He's greater than Moses. So, pay attention. Consider him. So, that's the connection. 
It's not random. It's not abrupt. That's the connection that he is working in here as he continues his pastoral purpose. Now, as he compares Jesus to Moses, the passage about Moses, the Old Testament passage about Moses that the author has in mind is way back in the book of Numbers. So I'm going to put it on the screen for you. You'll see how he refers to this. So way back in the book of Numbers, in chapter 12, here's, and, it, and it comes right out of this time period. So that's why it's so fitting. Here's the context for this passage he's referring to. This is the book of Numbers. So this is shortly after they leave Mount Sinai. They've just received this great revelation. Yes, they rebelled with the golden calf. We saw the handwriting on the wall, what happened there. But that's behind them now. They're going forward. They're in the wilderness. They're heading toward the promised land. And then we hear that Miriam and Aaron start to complain against Moses, saying, has the Lord spoken only through you, Moses? What about us? And so the Lord calls them together. And he says these words. So this is during that beginning wilderness period. And he says this. Listen to what he says about Moses. He draws three of them together. And he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I... Yahweh, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so, now listen to the language, with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses. <laughs> he calls out, God does, the uniqueness of Moses amongst everybody. Amongst all the prophets. He has this unique place in the house of God, the people of God, as God's great spokesman and mediator. He speaks face to face with him. Openly. He's not just a prophet, he's the greatest of those, and uniquely so. So Moses was a great person. He was faithful in all God's house. Moses is definitely someone to admire, and the Jewish people admired Moses. He was the greatest figure of the Old Testament. Yes, Abraham, yes, David, those are all, but Moses, the great mediator who spoke with God face to face, they had a reverence for Moses, rightly so, as his unique role. So with that in mind now, let's, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and, and watch what the writer of Hebrews does with that text in mind as he shows Jesus is greater than Moses. That's my heading. Jesus is greater than Moses. Now let's just follow his steps. So first, or A, the command. I've already said it, but let's, let's see it again. The command. It's how he starts. It's why he's transitioning now as he extends the comparison. Therefore... Based on everything I just said about Jesus as high priest, therefore, and he's going to give the command, consider Jesus. As I already said, take thought of him. Fix your thoughts on him. Consider him carefully. He's writing to Christians. Again, he's not writing to the unbelievers saying, hey, have you ever considered Jesus? That's something good to say, but he's saying to you and me, consider Jesus. That is, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Give him full attention. Do you understand who he is? Do you glory in him? As we just sang. 
So are you this morning? Are, are you considering Jesus? Are your thoughts fixed on him? How often? How often do you consider Jesus? Really? Do you savor him and who he is? That's his command. Consider Jesus. Give your full attention. But notice how he says it here. He doesn't just get to the command, but he gives a few descriptions. So first, notice the description of believers. Don't pass this over. This is really meant to encourage us. Therefore, before he gets to command, he says, holy brethren. See that? Therefore, he's speaking to his readers, to us, he's speaking to Christian. That is, holy brothers and sisters. Now, he's giving this description to encourage us and his readers to consider Jesus. This is who you are. So he encourages them by the way he addresses them. Don't forget who you are, holy brothers and sisters. He's, he's reminding them in that description that they are God's people. They're God's family. We are God's family. So again, he's, he's picking up what he said in chapter 2, remember? That Jesus became like us, brothers and sisters, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We're, we're part of his family. And we're not just brothers and sisters, we're holy Brothers and sisters, holy because of Jesus, set apart. Again, back in chapter 2, he said it, used this same language in verse 11, for both he, Jesus, who makes holy, sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, made holy, are all from one. That's us. Holy brothers and sisters, that's the word, by the way, we get the word saint from, saints. Paul likes to use that. Saints. Again, in our church tradition, sadly, we think of saints like St. John as these special figures. No, not, not in the Bible. You, we are saints. We're holy brethren. Christ has purchased us. And then, notice, partakers of a heavenly calling. This is who we are. We're holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling. So here, he's, he's just orienting us to our destiny. A holy calling or a heavenly calling. We have an invitation from heaven. We've been invited from heaven to heaven. We have a heavenly calling, heavenly invitation. That's our, that's our destiny. That's who we are. Don't forget that as we get caught up so many things here. This invitation is issued by God from heaven Made available through his son, we have a heavenly calling. We're partake, we're sharers together in this heavenly calling. Our ultimate destination, as we'll see in this book, is the heavenly Jerusalem. That new city. That's where our focus is. So, before he gets to the command, he describes us. And then, notice secondly, before he gets to the specific command. He describes Jesus. Number two, the description of Jesus. Do you see this? Again, this is all incentives for us to consider him. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, it reads literally like this, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. <laughs> consider Who is he? He describes him. Just notice this description. First, the apostle. The apostle. It's the only time in the Bible Jesus is called 
the apostle. Nowhere else, and nowhere else even in the book of Hebrews. We don't usually use that term. What's it mean he is the apostle? We think of the apostles as the 12, right? Those, what's it mean? Well, remember, apostle just means sent. You're commissioned. You're sent out with authority. Well, that's ultimately, who's he sent from? He's sent from God the Father. And what is he sent for? As the final culminating word of God. He is, in that sense, the apostle, sent as the final, complete revelation word of God. So in these, in these descriptions, apostle and high priest, he's, he's just really summarizing everything he said in chapters 1 and 2 about Jesus. He's the apostle in that he is God's final word. He's sent from God. He came to do his Father's will. All through the Gospel of John, upwards of 30, 40 times, he is referred to as the one who is sent. He refers sent. I've been sent by the Father. That's the idea here. He is the one who is sent as the complete final word of God. He is the apostle. Again, he's superior to angels. He's superior to any prophets. He's superior even to Moses as the apostle. The apostle and high priest. Now, we saw that last week, how unusual that language is. Only the writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the high priest. So we thought on that verse 17, he's going to get to that. That's what he's going to go on as his great theme to explain. So again, I just mentioned it when he says high priest. He's referring you back to verse 17 of chapter 2. As high priest, he made perfect atonement as our representative. He made perfect atonement for us. He's our high priest. That's who we are considering. The apostle, the one sent And the high priest, the one who has made atonement, covered our sin. So you you combine those, the apostle and the high priest, the ultimate revelation of God. What did he disclose? He disclosed the high priest. That Jesus is high priest. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. That is, we confess Jesus. He's at the center of our confession. We're Christians. That's just definitional who we are. We confess Jesus. That's what a Christian is. We confess with our mouths Jesus as Lord, Paul says. Here, we confess him as the apostle and high priest of our confession, the one God sent, the one who accomplishes our salvation. We confess. The confession is just a statement of our allegiance and what we believe. Right? Through church history, we have various confessions of faith or creeds. And at the center of those is Jesus. He's the high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then just one other description, and this is going to get him into his comparison. Verse 2, who being faithful. He's faithful. As we consider Jesus, let's consider his faithfulness. He was faithful to him, to God, who appointed him. Who sent him, who appointed him as high priest. He was faithful, and he's using that language. We saw it back in chapter 2 last week. He's the faithful high priest. It refers to the incarnate obedience of Jesus, mostly, which continues on right now to his high priesthood. He is faithful. He came to do his Father's will He was faithful in his suffering and temptation, as we thought on last Sunday. He doesn't fail. 
He didn't fail, and he won't fail, and he won't fail us. He was faithful. He was faithful. He was perfect. We'll see. Chapter 4. Christ was faithful. So there, there's a description of Jesus. So consider him. Do you? He's the apostle and the high priest of our confession, and he was faithful in these things and remains faithful as our high priest. Now, it's that note that leads him to the comparison. So let's go be here. The second thing, the comparison, Jesus and Moses. This is what leads him into comparison, that word faithful. He was faithful like Moses. You see it? Verse 2, he, Jesus, was faithful to him, to God who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his, now the his is God, not Moses, his house, in God's house. He's referring back, Numbers 12, we just read it, where God said, he is faithful in my house, my household. So he is faithful. Again, why, is he, why does he go to Moses? So it's not random. He's not just thinking of great people to compare Jesus to. He compares Jesus with Moses because Moses' role as the premier agent of the revelation of the Old Testament, as the mediator of that old covenant, as the leader of God's people. And again, he's drawing this comparison. Those who received that great word from Moses, and now we have received this word, the ultimate word in the Son, He's drawing the comparison. So at the beginning here, he's going to compare the two mediators, Jesus and Moses. And there's no comparison, is his point. Oh, he compares them. There is comparison. But ultimately, Jesus is greater. He's greater. That's, that's what he wants to say. Jesus is greater. Now, he, he uses this language of house. Household. You see it? Again, verse 2, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was in all his house. Again, he's just, he's using, why is he doing that? The language of Numbers 12. That's where he's getting it. Numbers 12. And by house, oikos, house can refer to a house, a structure, or by extension, a household, a family. The normal way it's used in the New Testament, oikos is family structure. But it can refer to a building structure also. So he's going to play on this kind of double meaning of the word. Ultimately, it refers to God's people by house. But he's going to refer, he's going to use the image of a building, a structure, a house, to show the relationship of Moses and Jesus to God's family. That's what he's doing here, so don't get confused as he does that. What's his point? Here's his main point. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. That's what he says. He's going to compare them through that word faithful. Now, he, he doesn't say, he's not trying to say Jesus is more faithful than Moses. We might say, well, that's true. But no, he's, he's upholding Moses. Moses was faithful. But Jesus is worthy of more glory. He's not just saying, well, Jesus was more faithful. No, that's not the point. No, Jesus is in a different category. <laughs> right? Jesus is greater in his role and his person and his glory. Than Moses. Yes, Moses was faithful. Yes, Moses was unique. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. And when he says more glory, that's what he says there. Verse 3, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That's his point. 
He's been counted worthy by God of more glory than Moses. He doesn't mean just in degree. Moses was great. Jesus is a little greater. Jesus is a little bit better. No. He means in kind. Categorically different. (laughs) Jesus is in a different category than Moses. Yes, Moses in so many ways is a type of Jesus and points to Jesus, but Jesus, the reality of the Son, is a different category of glory than Moses. Remember, Jesus is the one who is crowned with glory and honor, we saw back in chapter 2. Jesus is the one who brings many sons to glory as the high priest. He's in a different category, both in his person and in what he accomplishes. Now, to draw out this comparison or this contrast that Jesus is worthy of more glory, he's, he's using, based on this building image, he uses just a common proverb. The proverb is this, the one who establishes or builds the house is greater than the house. The one who establishes, builds the house, is greater than the house itself. Right? More honor to the, one, the builder, the one who builds or establishes it, than the house. So how is Jesus worthy of more glory than Moses? Just note three things here that he draws out. Just follow his, his argument. One, using this proverb about the house, Moses is part of God's house, that is household, but Jesus establishes God's house, his household. Moses is part of it, a unique part, a faithful part, but Jesus builds it. Jesus establishes it, that's what he's saying. That's a categorical difference. The one is the source of the other, right? Yes, Moses was faithful in the house. He's part of the household of God, and he has a a uniqueness of all people there in his role and his faithfulness, but Jesus built the house. Jesus establishes Moses. Jesus ultimately is the creator of Moses. So Jesus is to Moses as the builder is to the house. That's the analogy. When he says that Jesus here establishes the house, that's the implication, again, by just so much as the builder or the establisher of the house has more honor than the house. How does Jesus establish the house, the, the people of God? Well, again, he's the final revelation. He's the final fulfillment. He's the provider of salvation. The Son brings that. So in that sense, the Son brings the people of God into existence through His saving work. Old and New Testament, by the way. The Son does. He establishes the household of God. He's the head of the people of God. He's not just part of it. He's the source of it. He establishes it. He is the head of it by what he did. And then he just strengthens that in verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So he's just he's gonna kind of take this building analogy and relate it to creation itself. That God, God is the ultimate builder of everything through his son. Every house is built by someone, 
But ultimately behind that is God. So just like Jesus is the establisher of the church, yes, behind that is God. God, through the Son, establishes his people. He builds his house. Just a veiled reference, again, back to what we saw in chapter 1, that God created everything through Jesus. He's the creator. Well, so too with the people of God. God, through Jesus, establishes everything. So that's one. Number two, how is Jesus worthy of more glory? Well, first, he's, he's the builder. He's the establisher of the house. Two, Moses was faithful as a one-of-a-kind steward in God's household, but Jesus was faithful as the unique son over God's household. Moses was faithful as a one-of-a-kind servant or steward. He uses a different word for servant here, and he's using the word from Numbers chapter 12. He had a unique role. When the Bible, when it says he's my servant, that's a title of real honor. He was a steward. He had this this unique role in God's house. But Jesus, he was faithful as the unique son. Not in the house, over the house. You see it, verse 5, this is how he draws out. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant or steward for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his, God's house. You see it? Again, he's not denigrating Moses. He's saying Moses was faithful. He's quoting basically Numbers 12, verse 7, where God said, Moses was faithful in all my house. Moses was faithful as a servant steward in God's household. He has a one of a kind. That's what God was saying back in Numbers 12. He has this unique role as mediator, as prophet. Unlike any of the other prophets, I speak to him face to face. He's the mediator of that old covenant. He has that unique role in God's house, but he's still part of the house, the household. He's just, he's a member in the household who was faithful in his role. But Christ is the son, not the servant, not the steward. Jesus is not just a higher steward in the house. He's the son over the house who creates the house, who establishes the house, who supplies the house with all of its needs, the household. He's in a different category than Moses. He takes his place with the father over the house as the son. He establishes it, and he's going to bring it to its intended goal. So, yes, Moses was faithful. Yes, we honor Moses And thank God for his use of unique role of Moses. But he's still just a member of the house. Jesus, the son over the house. Third, last thing. Moses bore faithful witness to God's future, final revelation, now spoken in the son. How was Moses faithful as a steward in God's house. Well, we could think of all the ways, all the things that Moses did and his faithfulness, but, but what does our author have mainly in view? Do you see it? Go back to verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a steward as a testimony for those things 
which were to be spoken in the future, later, after Moses. <laughs> Do you know what Moses' great role in the house of God was? To point to Jesus. That's ultimately his great role in all that he did, all that he wrote, all that he said, was to point to Jesus. He was a witness of those things which were to be spoken later, after him. That's his role in everything he did. All of it is pointing to the Son. Don't get caught up with Moses. Get caught up with the one he's pointing to, the fulfillment why Jesus could say, all that was written in the law, the book of Moses, speaks of me. Do you remember that scene? I think it's in John 5 when Jesus is always having these confrontations with Jewish leaders and they're always seeking to kill him because he's making himself be God and they're always claiming their allegiance to Moses. They loved Moses. They Adored Moses, and Jesus indicts them. He says, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And these, these scriptures, bear witness of me. And you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. And then he said these stunning words. This is the end of John chapter 5. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. Moses, the one you're putting your hope in. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. <laughs> but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You hear it? He wrote of me. What was Moses' great role? To point to Jesus. How did he do that? How was he a, a witness of the things to be spoken later? Well, by what he wrote, by what he said, by what he did. He was the great mediator. In that sense, he's a type of Jesus. But by what he wrote, by what he established, the whole sacrificial system, remember through Moses, the whole priesthood, all of that is what? What's going to be spoken in the Son. So the Son is so much greater than Moses. Moses was a shadow to point to the fullness of the sun. It's like the little candle with the burning wick there compared with the glory of the sun. That's Moses to, to Jesus, right? Again, remember that scene. That's why when Jesus, remember, he's on that Mount of Transfiguration. I mentioned this before, where his appearance has changed and Peter and James and John are with him and, and then appeared with him, Moses and Elijah. Remember that scene? The great prophets, the law of the prophets appeared with him, and Peter's so taken up with that. He just said, well, this is great. The three great men. Let's build three tabernacles for the three great men. And remember, that voice out of heaven comes. Darkness overshadows them. They're trembling, and, and God says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. To him. Don't put him on the level of Moses and Elijah. They spoke of him. So, do you see him? Who he is? Superior? Now, let's, let's finish. Third C, the application. And by that, I mean the author's application, not mine. Because this is a sermon. 
This letter is a sermon. I don't need to apply. He, he applies it all through it. So let's just listen to his application. We are God's house. So now, now he's applying it. Verse 6. Christ was faithful as a son over his, over God's house, whose house we are. You hear him? We are. This house I've been talking about, the people of God, that's us. We are that house. Hmm. We are God's house. He has established us. Christ has. He has purchased us. He has formed us. He has made us part of this. So we, note that we are part of the one people of God. Christ has established us and provides for us. We are privileged members of the house, the household. Even, even us Gentiles. Now, that's not the author's focus. He's not focused on Jew-Gentile divide like Paul is. But Paul, interesting, uses this kind of same imagery in Ephesians chapter 2 to, to speak to us Gentiles. Because Paul's writing to mostly Gentile churches. He's writing to Hebrew Christians. But when Paul's applying the same truth to Gentile Christians, he says, you're no longer aliens. You're no longer strangers. But you're members, fully citizens, members of God's house. That's who we are. And then he uses temple imagery. We're being built into this temple. No distinction between Jew and Gentile. So we, we are the house. We are part of the one people of God. So notice this. You get this perspective from the writer of Hebrews. He doesn't think so much in terms of old covenant people and now new covenant people. Now he's going to tell us the glorious benefits of the new covenant. We'll get there. But as he's thinking of the people, he's thinking of the one people of God. Remember, Moses is part of the house. Moses is just a fellow member of the house, the same house that we're part of. So those saints of old are part of the house, we're part of the house. So the one people of God. Moses is a fellow servant in the one family, the one house. So that's why the writer of Hebrews can, as he thinks of this one people of God, yes, under these two covenants, this one people of God, He can use the former people of God as a powerful example for us, both negatively, it's coming, and positively. And he's going to get to that. He has an entire chapter, chapter 11, of the former people of God who persevered in the faith. It's a glorious chapter, chapter 11. It's a counterbalance to what we're going to see in chapters 3 and 4. So he sees it. We're part of this one people. So that's why he can take these examples now and apply to That's why. Now, where does he go first? He's going to the negative example first. Because remember his purpose? Hold fast to Christ. Don't imitate the former people of God after they left Sinai and then fell in unbelief. Don't. So notice what he says as he applies it. Look at, look at the rest of verse 6 now. Whose house we are if, if we hold fast our boldness, confidence, and the boasting of our hope. You hear it? This is going to lead him right into this warning. 
from chapter 3 of what happened to the people in the wilderness. We are his house if we hold fast. You hear that? He wants us to hear it. This is going to be, this is going to echo all through this book of these implied warnings and some very explicit, severe warnings. So he says this, my last point. If we persevere in faith, hold fast, we belong to God's house, his household. If we persevere in faith, that is what he says here. If we hold fast, we are God's house. He's using a conditional statement, but he's just putting the, what we normally think of if then, he's putting the then part first. We are God's, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope. Do you hear it? If we persevere, we belong to God's house. And the implication is, is really clear. If we don't persevere, hold fast, we don't belong to his house. You get it? Now, we're going to see this repeatedly in the book of Hebrews. And we, we're going to seek to develop it because Questions come up. What's that mean for me as a believer and my security? What's that mean for the issue of losing salvation? We'll talk about those things. We'll get to those because this is just going to keep reoccurring in really direct, powerful ways in this book. Right now, I just don't want you to lose the force of this. Whatever our views on those things are, just don't miss him saying, if the, the need for perseverance... We must persevere to belong to God's house. That's not how we become part of God's house, certainly. But those who belong to God's house, they persevere in the faith. But the writer of Hebrews will never see that as just some autopilot, some automatic. So he's going to continually call us to persevere, to hold fast. And that's what he's doing here. Notice how he says it, because this is really helpful. Throughout this book, he's going to call us to hold fast, and he's going to use different descriptions. But here he says, if we hold fast our confidence, our, our boldness, what's he mean? Well, he's going to explain that in chapter 4. He means the confidence to enter the presence of God through our high priest and to seek the grace we need to persevere. We're going to hold it fast. You'll say in chapter 10, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. We have need for endurance. So hold fast to our confidence, that, that approach to God, that confidence that Jesus is there as our high priest. And we come, we come routinely and daily before the throne of grace to receive help and grace, do you? <laughs> do you hold fast to that confidence and hold fast to the boasting of our hope? The, the glorying, the rejoicing in our hope. The hope is our future inheritance. This is a robust faith in God's future inheritance for us. If we boast in, exult in this hope, it's not a half-hearted faith consumed with so many other things. We are exulting in that hope. Are you? 
So, so right th- therein is part of the means to persevering, holding fast, routinely, with confidence, coming to the throne of grace to receive help. Remember, Jesus is able, able to aid those who are tempted, as we learned last week. And, and our focus is on that hope. Is that you? Do, do you sense a drift in your heart? That's Remember he warned us in chapter 2? All of us, all of us struggle with doubts. That is common to our faith. If you think, uh, I'm struggling with doubt, I must not be a Christian. All of us will struggle with doubt. It's just, it's common to our nature and our faith. Is this true? Am I true? All of that. And it's, that's not the uncommon, it's, it's what we do with it. Do you feed it? Do you feed the doubt? Look for, you know, go searching why this isn't true or mustn't be, or, or do you fight it with the promises of God, with who Jesus is, with considering Jesus and who he is and what he's done and who I am in him. So again, I say, Christian, consider, give full attention to Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we we are amazed. Help us to be amazed at this gift of your son, so much greater than angels, so much greater than Moses, the perfect savior, the apostle, the high priest, the faithful one. Give us grace to consider him and to hold fast our confidence, even now to draw near to your throne, even this week in our week of prayer, to draw near to the throne to receive mercy and to glory in the hope that we have that's certain. So as we go, fix our eyes on Jesus today. We ask in his name, amen.